This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? Dear Buddhists, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. social commentator, socially commentating, what they stipulating. Are you sitting comfortably? Put your seatbelts on, cause you're in for a howling ride Cause I am the narrator The voice that guides the blind Following up with your ears, but your mind And allow me to take you back on four feet time To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now But won't Further down the line Today, we're going to hear a conversation I had with writer, poet, and professor Michael Klein about his life as a writer and poet and writing teacher at various colleges around the Northeast, growing up in New York, and stories of his life and encounters with interesting people along the way. We even get into a little politics. I spoke with Michael while he was on campus here at Goddard College. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so how's your experience been this residency so far? It's been really good. It's been um, probably one of the better residencies that I've had um, for a number of reasons. First of all, um, I'm on antidepressants. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> but it seems to me that I went on an antidepressants after Trump was elected. But anyway, so that actually does... I, I went through a... I don't know if I talked about this the last time I was here, but I had a really horrible experience. It's something I'm going to be writing about, and it was very traumatic. I'm not going to go into it, but I was in a very, very dark place. I acted out in a way that I've never done it before in my life. And so that I've just come through that. I'm better. You know, I'm sort of back in my old life in a certain way. I'll get to your answer. I'll get to the answer to the question. But Don't worry. There's plenty of time. Yeah, and, and sure. I want to get to it in your way. Well, yeah. I, I want to get to whatever we get to yeah, in your way. That's right. Yeah. It doesn't matter where we go. Yeah, good. 
Yeah. Good. Um, I figured that, but I just, you know, sometimes you never know. Really, you don't. You, yeah, <laughs> sometimes I, I understand. You don't know people. Yeah. So I'm sort of going. Th- I'm get, getting through that in a much better way, and I came up to the residency sort of um, looking forward to it. I mean, the the thing. The main thing about this residency that was different than any other was that I had to write the commencement speech. I, I did the commencement speech, mm-hmm. but I had to write it, obviously. Um, I've done it, I think it's my third or fourth time doing one at Goddard. The graduating class chooses a faculty member. And I was chosen, and it was a great thing to be chosen by this particular class because I really liked them and I knew a lot of them. And they really an amazing amount of talent in various genres. And I wrote it, but I was writing it up to the point that I was giving it. I mean, I had a, I, you know, I'm a very meticulous reviser, revisionist. And, you know, if I had had a pencil or a pen in my hand while I was giving it, I would have been making changes as I was reading it. I've actually been to readings where people do that, which I think is really cool, actually. Um, so the task was, I don't believe in these commencement speeches. It's, uh, the, you know, the, the world that you are, you are entering a world and, you know, with all these gifts that you've gotten and blah, 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 blah. And I mean, because we're living in a world that's completely out of its mind at the moment. And um, you can feel free to use any language. Oh, because okay, good. I can bleep anything. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, I'm pretty clean, actually. Okay. Um, when so I'm, just be natural. Yeah, I'll be natural. <laughs> Be yourself. I oh okay. What a challenge. If, if that's hard, <laughs> it's really hard for me. Let me see. Um, God, if God, if you don't get to be, if you, it's amazing if, how intimidated people get when they're on the radio because they're not sure how they're supposed to behave. Yeah, or I how know. To, you know that, so, but obviously you're. you're well, I'm a pro. But I've also, I mean, I've been on the radio before. But one of the things, I'll get, and I'll get back to the residency and the commencement. But one of the things that I um, did a few months ago was I was. I teach at Hunter College in New York, and whenever I would I teach two classes, and whenever I would come home from one of them, I would always have this all this energy from teaching, and I really love these classes. They're filled with really smart, interesting, provocative kids. You know, half of them are immigrants. Um, I want to get to that actually because one of the I had to do a I had to teach a class right after the election, which was harrowing. But I come home with all this energy, and I decided to do one of those things on Facebook. You know how people do these video things, and I usually hate them. I think they're really stupid. I mean, you know, this is me walking down the street, getting on the subway, and I have a lemon meringue pie. I hope I don't drop it, and just bullshit. But um, that's probably the only time I'll say something. And it was completely not myself. And it was completely self-conscious. <laughs> because you said that. You said don't do that. So I did I'm it. very subversive. Yeah, you sure are, Tonio. People have no idea. Oh, I, I could tell. Um, so I, I, I did. I did about four or five of these. Like, And what I would do is I would put a piece of music on in the background. And I had this really good mic because I auditioned for voiceovers on the line. And so I have this really good mic, very small, but really good mic. And I point the computer, you know, the whatever you do when you, I, I don't know what it's called, but you're videotaping and I'm on Facebook and I did about four or five of them and um, people really liked them. And all I did was sort of talk what was in my mind at the moment. And it would always lead to a piece of writing. And coincidentally, actually, it was really never planned, but I would think of something that made me think of a piece of writing. And I would read a poem or, you know, or some, or some prose that came up in my, you know, rambling on and on. But it was it was really fun. They last about 20 minutes, I would say. And, that, like, people are asking me, when are you going to do that, whatever that thing is you do, <laughs> again? And then uh, you have to come up with a title for it. Yeah, I'm going to have to do the whole thing. Um, I don't know anything about 
you know, podcasts or, I mean, I'm, my students are really turning me on to these podcasts that I have to listen to. I listen to, there are a couple of them that I listen to that are, they're political, but um, I don't listen to them religiously. And I do not walk around with headphones. I really don't. I'm not one of the, in the city. I just don't. I don't know why I don't. Maybe it's because everybody else does. You know, from a very early age, I just refuse to take the signals that seemed rampant in society. Like, I didn't wear the clothes that I thought people were wearing. I didn't do, you know, and I, it was like my little, I don't know. I just didn't want to be, I, I didn't want to be like anybody else, like ever, because probably because I was a twin and it was very important for me to establish my own personality. And I think that was a surreptitious way of doing that, of just refusing to, you know, like the whole world could be my twin or something. And I just, I would, I would never do that. I mean, for instance, I mean, the way it would play out would be really strange. Like if I went to this hippie school when I was um, in ninth and 10th grade, and so everybody could wear whatever they wanted. And I wore a tie and a jacket because it had to be different. And it was ridiculous. And people thought I was out of my mind. Like, why are you wearing a tie and a jacket? And I, I couldn't say because I, I want to be different. I, I said because I feel comfortable in a tie and jacket, which was not true. So, I mean, and it was such bullshit. But, you know, in some ways, I just, I just couldn't, I didn't want to conform in any way. And so, back to the residency. So I was writing this commencement speech. I remember the commencement speech about I had to put what was going on in the world, and you know, and I did a commencement speech here after 9-11, of all things, and it was very political. It was so political that even people at Goddard who were graduating had a trouble with it. Like, they would talk about it in their little thank yous. Like, that commencement by Michael Klein has nothing to do with graduation. And it's like, so I, I didn't want to do that again, and yet I could not not face what everybody's facing at this present moment in time. So I did talk about Trump, and I talked about immigration. I talked about, you know, I, I basically talked about normalization. I talked about the horror of normalization and how, you know, that that process is pretty much finished. Like, we, are, we have been normalized to accept an absolutely unconstitutional fascist regime. I mean, it's not, we're not in the camps yet, and people aren't marching and blah, 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 and the white nationalists are out every day, you know, proclaiming the news, but... It's it's in the making. I mean, it's just nothing, nothing that this motherfucker does gets challenged by anybody. It's astonishing. I mean, and maybe this is naive, but I keep thinking, like, there are a lot of people with money that are cool. I know there are, because I know some of them. I spent New Year's Day a few years ago with one of Warren Buffett's sons, it was really cool. I mean, he, him and his wife run this foundation, and they give money away to these really radical, like the Amazon Bush women and stuff. I mean, seriously, they give money away to places and organizations that can't, can't get money anywhere else. So why aren't those people who are part of the 1%, like, get with it and do something? Because, I mean, the bottom line is I, I don't think it's about elections necessarily. You know, I think it's about money. And if if... if and this is really naive. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm just going to say No, you, you, you do know what you're talking <laughs> okay. about, and I know what you're talking okay. about. And I just want to quickly throw in something that I think will reaffirm what you're saying. Yeah, great. But in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. And that is that there have been a few people that are speaking out against it, but they're getting – it's just fading away into oblivion. Yeah. And I totally agree with you. Trump, Trumpism, and his cohorts – they are becoming normalized into 
the current status quo of our culture. Yeah. And that fringe, his base, is not the majority. And it's for some reason, in, you know, through, through whatever it is that the media is doing or, or what, you know, whatever it is that people believe that don't happen to live in a city or a town that's particularly aware of what's going on in the country or the rest of the world, God knows. But it's a trend. I mean, fascism is a trend in the world. I mean, there's well, fascist the, thinking. Yeah, fascist thinking. Which is what's even more dangerous. Yeah. Because fascism itself is a phase. Right. That usually burns itself out. Right. But fascist thinking, hopefully, I'm hoping that it will also be a phase that just burns itself out. Yeah. I know, do, yeah. I hope so. I, I do too. But while we're living through it, it's, I mean, and the writers and the intel, I mean, I, you know, I keep thinking like Kennedy. I'm old enough to remember when Kennedy was president. I mean, I was young, but I remember Kennedy and, and Clinton to a certain degree. And Obama, I mean, these were presidents that really not only respected intellectuals and artists, they actually relied on them, you know, for advice. I mean... And they aspired to that. Yeah. And they were both writers. They were all writers. Kennedy won the Pulitzer Prize, for God's sake. You know, and Obama's actually a good writer. That memoir is really good. And Clinton has written, you know. And I love the title, by the way, of Hillary Clinton's book, What Happened Without a Question Mark. I think it's great. I, I thought it was really striking as a title. It's unfortunate that it's her book, but I really think it's a title. It's really kind of great as a title. It reminded me there was a, a novel years ago by Joseph Heller called uh, – it was a play, I think, called What Happened oh, – I can't remember what the title of, of it was. But I think I, it was What Happened. What Happened, was it? I think so. I, oh, I, I could mean, be wrong because it is a while back. It could be. And it, I didn't read it. I didn't but read I saw it the title. I also love titles. I mean, there are many books in my history where the title alone stands as an icon in, in my Oh, my, yeah, absolutely. My, yeah, I've written, yeah, I've written about this, and I was talking about this in the class that I did today. The first metaphor that I ever saw without knowing it was a metaphor was The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. And I remember like being fixated with that title. It's like I kept imagining, is there something about the heart that I don't know? Like does it move to the body? I mean I was like, And does it hunt? And does it hunt? Does it have a gun? And what does it hunt for? Exactly. (laughs) More blood? Flesh? But really, I mean, I just thought that title was amazing. And we were doing titles. Um, how the title, what, what, what I was talking about was how titles in many, many ways identify the subtext immediately. So you don't even have to guess what the subtext is. Or it identifies a major scene in the book. Like, what, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? That scene in that play is a major scene in the play. Um, Angels in America is, is a title that sort of tells many things about the play without you having to know anything about the play. But for some reason, titles are very difficult for many people. I happen to be really good at them. I mean, I actually go around thinking of titles in my head. I've always done that. It's sort of like, you know, like instead of doing crossword puzzles, I think of titles. It's the thing that keeps me from getting Alzheimer's, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I, could, I, I haven't finished. I tried crosswords. I have not been able to finish a crossword, even the simple ones in my life. So I stopped doing that. <laughs> but anyway, so I got, so the commencement had to do with Trump. And it had to do with writing. It sort of had to do with writing with a social conscious and a moral, you know, um, a sense of morality to it. And that you're not just writing for yourself. And that I think that we live in a time when you really, even if the outside world is not something that you consider as a subject for your writing, 
it might be time to consider for your writing. And I said that because that was advice that was given to me. Adrienne Rich told me that many years ago after reading one of my books of poems. I think I mentioned before she was my mentor when I started writing poetry. And she wrote me a letter and she said... Um, you know, you do the autobiography really well, but it's basically, it's like it's really time to start writing about other shit. And um, I took her advice to a certain degree. I haven't taken it wholly yet because I'm so used to writing autobiographically. But she, it's good advice. I think it's really good advice. Well, it's it's kind of a compliment in a way yeah. for her to say, because if, if she wasn't saying something positive about you, she would just be like, yeah, just keep writing about yourself. Oh, because yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, very true. We we were very close. I mean, she didn't bully. She was not. She didn't suffer fools, and she always, she really always told me the truth. Which is really isn't that how you know who your real friends are, even when the truth is yeah. hard to hear. Right. And so many people are, you know, it's like the Michael Jackson syndrome. I mean, and, and it's, then there was somebody else in the news who died, and I thought, oh, Michael, you know, where this whoever it is. Is never around people to tell them the truth because they're either getting paid in Michael Jackson's case or or for whatever reason. So they, they never assimilate with any kind of sense of, you know, that there are people who are going to take care of them if they get in trouble. And it's prevalent. And you find it a lot. You actually find it somewhat. I was talking about Mary Carr, the writer who wrote Liars Club, and a, like, she has a trilogy of memoirs. Wonderful writer. She came to Hunter to read. And I was telling my class that she is the most unfiltered writer I have ever encountered. She gossips about everybody and by name. And I had no problem with that. I think some people thought it was what she Somebody actually called her venal. But I actually kind of dug it. And the reason I dug it was because it was so different than what people expect from, from a writer. I mean, even in this day and age, I mean... We've seen as these, you know, we work alone and we're kind of buttoned up even if we're cool, but there is a conservative ass because, you know, we deal with publishers, which means that in some way we've sold out and, you know, and somebody gets a major publisher and somebody gets a small press publisher and it does make a difference usually, not always, not, not always among other writers. But when Mary was sort of doing her thing and just, I mean, fascinating gossip, I mean, the most extraordinary gossip I've ever heard. And I just thought, how oh, great. I, I, wish, I, I, I told her, I said, I wish all writers were as open and sort of unfiltered as you are. And she said, oh, well, you know. I mean, that's all she had to say. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> you just aren't. For many, you know, it's all about ego and blah, blah, blah. And I think that it's, you know, one of the things, I didn't really say this in the commencement, but I was thinking about it when I was writing it, about how so much of great writing really has to do with letting go of that, of letting go of the ego and who and how you're perceived. Because if you think about that when you're, I mean, it's that notion of writing for an audience, which I completely don't agree with. And we were talking about how the difference between popular writing and literary fiction, for instance, is that popular writing, they don't care about characters. Like, that, the characters are not the thing that's moving the plot. It's usually technology or, you know, apparatus. And if the character changes, it's usually within seconds, you know, that they become, I don't know, something. But I have never read, I have to be honest, I've never read really a popular, except the Herod Experiment, which is about co-eds and, and <laughs> sex in dorms and co-ed dorms. Uh, it's about a college. It was a real popular. You don't. You don't remember that book. I do remember. Oh, do it. you? Did you I'm, read it? I'm not sure if I read it. I mean, it's so long ago that I. It's I, so juicy. It's really great. I read that, and I read. I read like sex stuff. I read that, and I read. Um, 
what was that thing? Xavier Hollander. She's a prostitute. Yeah, she I remember wrote, that. I can't remember the book. And Erica Jong. Yeah, Erica like Jong. Erica Jong just friended me on like Instagram or something. It was like weird. Yeah, Erica Jong. And, and then there were all these gay. I mean, there was a guy named Gordon Merrick who wrote these gay pot boilers that I used to read because – there wasn't any gay literature, really. There was nothing, I mean, and if it was Ginsburg or James Baldwin or, you know, any of those people that were out to a certain degree, they weren't known as queer writers, really. Ginsburg was popular for other things because of, like, how he sounded and, you know, the fact that he was a Buddhist. You know, I mean, all that other stuff that was influencing who he was. I don't think his queerness was something. Well, it was, but it wasn't. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just that there was it wasn't no, his focus. Yeah, it wasn't his focus. And it wasn't any, you know, there were a lot of people who were writing those days who wouldn't even know that were gay until years later. Like James Purdy, I mean, you know, who was a fantastic writer. And so there wasn't, so I was, so I'd be reading this, this crap. I read Janae. Janae, I remember when I read Janae, I thought, oh, Okay, this is queer and it's good. Like there, are, there are good queer writers. My, I mean, I'm talking about in the fifth sixties, in the early sixties when I started to read. And my mother had all these books. I mean, you know, I wrote this essay once called, you know, my mother's library, which is all about, you know, I read my way into queerness. It had nothing to do with, with sexual attraction. It was just like they, those were the best stories. I thought those when I discovered really good gay writers like Janae, like Tennessee Williams, like you know Edward Albee. Although Edward Albee would never because I interviewed him once. He never wanted to be thought of as a gay writer. He hated that. He said, I'm a writer who happens to be gay. And I said, that's so tired, Edward. Really? You're, you're, you're f***ing queer. I mean, what, and, and what are you losing? You might be helping a teenager from committing suicide. I mean, seriously, it sounds hyperbolic, but Jesus. I mean, and Susan Sontag, there was all this shit about radical queers who were really upset that she was never out because, like, why isn't she out of the closet and blah, 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 blah. But, I mean, the only thing about Susan Sontag, which is sort of six degrees of separation about her queerness or, that I really love is David Reef, who was her son and who actually wrote a beautiful memoir about her after she died. David Reef is a writer and I think he's also an editor. I think that's what he was doing for many years. I went to school with him, you know, in, in the 60s at the hippie school. What um, was the hippie school, by the way? It was called New Lincoln and it was on 110th Street and it was in a building that had been a prison. And it had an elevator, which I always thought. And it was a private school. So you took the elevator, and it was a prison, but there was still one floor that was like an outpatient, like after you got out kind of prison, you came for therapy or whatever. And that was like on the fourth floor, and the school was on every other floor, which I always loved that this school was a prison. It didn't look like a prison. It looked like school, actually. But you called all your teachers by their first name. And you had a class. You never took a subject, like a specific subject. You had a grade, like you were in the eighth or ninth grade. But you took something called core, which was you would study generally a country and everything related, like their literature, their politics. You would study a country. And then you had math and you had music and art. And the arts were really, really stressed in that school. I and everybody did everything together. Yeah, and everybody did everything together. And the student body was extraordinary. I mean, there were lots of... Um, that's how I met Adrian. actually. Her kids went to that school. 
And it was great. I mean, it was a really, you know, I was going to that school, and my brother, on the other hand, was going to Horace Mann, which is a private school in Riverdale, and where you actually do wear a tie and a jacket. And he was so upset. I think, if I remember right, I think pretty sure he transferred to the school because he couldn't, you know, he, he was so jealous that I was at a school where you can call teachers by their first name. And then years later, it was very odd. I got, I had a teacher named Bob Giard, who later became sort of well known for this extraordinary project in which he photographed gay and lesbian LGBTQ writers. And it was, it was a huge exhibit at the New York Public Library. And many queer writers used his photograph for their books and jacket covers and stuff. And Bob had been my teacher. And I was performing in the 70s. I was performing in cabarets. I was a, I was, I was a songwriter, and I was doing cabaret stuff. And there was a piece about me in this magazine called Christopher Street that was actually a kind of a great magazine at the time. It was semi-serious. They had writing in it. Like they had, it wasn't like after dark or, you know, it certainly wasn't, you know, play girl or mandate or any of the queer magazines. I mean, it wasn't a picture book. I mean, it was, it was an attempt to have a, a gay literary magazine. And there was a little piece about me and Bob Giard had seen it and I got a letter from him. I don't know how he found out where I lived. But I got a letter from him saying, this is Bob, your sixth grade teacher. I remember, I wonder if you remember me. Of course I remembered him. And um, basically, I'm queer too. I mean, that was, he was coming out to me in this letter. I kind of knew he was queer when I was, when I was in his class. But I wasn't sure. You, you, never, you were never sure of anybody in those right. days. I mean, they were fucking. Although growing up in New York City, you, you could get, you could have a sense of it. But back then, you just didn't ask. Yeah, you didn't ask. Yeah, which was actually in some ways better than it is now. It was more of an openness. It's like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, and we don't need to go. There. It's it was unspoken that it was that it wasn't appropriate to ask. Yeah, but it was the undercurrent was it was okay to be. Yeah, yeah, and I think part of that had to do with it. Maybe I I I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I always thought that part of that had to do with the fact that there were so many artists. And you know what I mean? I, I totally agree with that. And yeah. and if you weren't a gay artist, if you happened to be a straight artist, you were always around gay people. Yes. Like, you know, I think of Larry Rivers and Frank O'Hara. And, you know, it was just, that was the thing. I mean, It was artists, the sea. Yeah, I mean, everybody the sea. swimming together. Exactly. There, there were no distinctions. Exactly. Except, except like on Fire Island. Exactly. Because Which was a ghetto, basically. Really? Because oh, I, yeah. I spent two summers in Ocean Beach, which right. is right next door to the, to the legendary... Or, Gay, yeah, Fire Island community, right? Which had those lovely boardwalks, yeah, yeah, throughout the, yeah. yeah, yeah, where I was stopped. My my godmother had a a summer house in the Pines, and I went to visit her when I was like thirteen or fourteen. Oh, that's right. It was called the Pines. Yeah, the Pines, yeah. which was the nice. There was Cherry Grove and the Pines. The Pines was the nicer gay ghetto. Um, but I was, <laughs> and I couldn't believe they lived there. And I I overheard. I'll never forget this. It's such a weird memory. But I overheard. My godmother and her husband, her husband telling my godmother, you're going to turn him queer. They were talking about me and, and her saying, he's 14 or whatever. And, and I remember walking down the boardwalk one afternoon and literally being stopped by these like, I don't know. I thought they were really old. They were probably 20 or 30. <laughs> like they wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me pass. And it was like, um... I'm a kid, like I, you know, I, I, I kind of want to have sex with you, but it's kind of inappropriate. Like I, I had to, it was such a mixed up feeling. I didn't know what to do, but they, they literally would not let me pass, and then they let me pass. But it wasn't daunting to me. <laughs> I was still able to follow my heart. But I went on such a tangent, Tony. And it's I love that tangent because I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. 
because I, I had run-ins like that, too, when I was, like, 12, Did you really? 11, 12 years old. And it was like, that just wasn't something, that wasn't part of who I was. Yeah. But I had grown up around people like that, so I knew, and on Fire Island in the uh, mid-60s. Mid-60s, yeah. And it was out in the open. Yeah. But that was New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole other yeah, part it, of the it really culture. Is. Yeah, it really is. I mean, one of the things I really loved about Patti Smith's book, Just Kids, which I thought, by the way, was yeah, – did you read it? No. I thought it was overrated. Um, I mean, won the National Book Award. I mean, I, I love her. So anything I that happens too. to her yeah. except dying, I'm totally support. <laughs> but the thing I loved about it was how wonderfully specific it was about New York in a very specific time in history. The same way the biography, I don't know if you've ever read the biography of Dean Arbus by Patricia Bosworth. Fantastic book. I mean, you learn, first of all, one of the things you learn about Dean Arbus as a photographer was how incredibly poetic she was. Not just her sensibility, but the way she talked. I mean, she was really quite something. And it's another book. It's a beautiful book about New York at a very particular time in history. On the last show, did I tell you about meeting Deanne Arbus? I don't know. I don't think I told you because I don't think I can't think of a tangent that would have connected to it. But, but you anyway, can make one up. Yeah, now. I'll make one up, and and I'm sure if anybody's listening to this, they haven't heard it before. Right. Uh, but Deanne Arbus and I was really good friends, and I still am very good friends with her daughter, who also is a photographer. Named Amy Arbus, um, who spends actually a lot of time in Provincetown. But we we were like boyfriend and girlfriend, like in third grade, <laughs> which meant absolutely nothing. In fact, she would just every time I see her now, she say, you know, she'll bring it up and she say, you know, I had such a crush on you, and I said, oh, okay. I mean, nothing happened. We didn't. I don't even remember kissing her or anything. But apparently, we were boyfriend and girlfriend. And I met her mother once when Deanna Arbus was alive. They were living on Bleecker Street, as I recall. And when I met her. She was holding her hand up to a table lamp, and I've written about this somewhere, I can't remember where. And, you know, when you can send away on the back of comic books in those days, you could send away for shit. Like, they, they were called x-ray glasses. I remember those. She times. was wearing a pair of x-ray glasses looking in her hand. She said, they really work. Really? <laughs> that was that? my encounter with Deanna Arbus, which I, I just love. I mean, it's so, like, Deanna Arbus. It's like such a thing that she would do. And that's all I remember. I don't think I ever saw her again. I, t I do remember it was her. I don't think she was well-known. I don't believe so. She might have just started becoming well-known. I don't know when she became well-known. In fact, her fame really came after her death. But I think she was sort of well-known while she was living. But anyway, that's a New York, uh, that very particular time kind of story. And you would meet people like that all the time. I mean, I had a friend in high school whose mother was named Claire Moore, who was an, a painter. And she was telling me the story once about... That William de Kooning apparently was her mentor. And she would go to de Kooning's house... And they stopped being friends at one point. I said, why did you stop being friends? And, and Claire said, I went over there one day and he said, oh, Claire, the paintings are great, but let's f***. <laughs> and she said, and she described him as, some, as a painter who painted with his dick. It's a paintbrush, which, by the way, was a common rumor about him. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I just felt like Martin Short is that character, Jimmy. What's that character? You know that character he does, Jimmy? Oh, my God, it's hysterical. He wears a fat suit. You don't know this character? It's Martin Short. I know who Martin Short Sh Jeremy, is. Jimmy Glick, who is a, he's a Hollywood gossip hound. You got a YouTube, but it's really funny. He's really funny. 
But I, I just want to end the thing about the commencement because you asked something. Now, now I'm getting to your original question. <laughs> where, where Which are is we? probably totally irrelevant. I know. It's just like, where are we? Father, you hear that train? People are going home on that train. Um, Hold it. <laughs> Hold I'll it. be there in an hour. Yeah, I'll be there in an hour. I have money. I don't have a ticket, but I've got money. So I, it talks about the world, and I talked about... Um, Normalization, and I, I, I also inserted this. This I thought it was great because I love her so much. It's a Dora Duncan story about how she was a dancer who was completely free. Nobody taught her how to be free. She just knew that she was free from the very moment she was born. And um, I think people liked it. You, you really never know. It's a very strange thing to write. It's way. It's not what I normally write, and I've ended up writing three or four of them. Two of them have been published. This isn't publishable because it's too specific to Goddard. At one point, I name every graduate, you know, and I can take that out. But it's not something I actually kind of want. I wanted it to be much more visionary, actually. It wasn't as visionary as I wanted it to be. It felt a little retro, even for the moment. And I feel like that in terms of when one feels compelled to be writing about our present moment. For one thing, it's happening so quickly it's really hard to figure out from where to come from, you know, in terms of point of view. I just, well, how can you when you have no idea where where you are in, yeah. in the context of it all? Yeah. And it, it kind of feels like you're exploding at the same time. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or, every, or everything is exploding. Yeah. And yeah. People are really, really mad. But I also think, you know, people, and I speak of this a little bit too in the speech about how people, it's part of the normalization I call for a national strike at one point in the piece where I just say it's time to have a national strike. I mean, this has been said by many people. It's not new. It was said months ago. It keeps coming up. A lot of people on Facebook bring it up. I don't know who organizes it, how it gets organized. But there has to be a movement that will be the largest, you know, resistance movement ever known in this country. And it has to be to face what this is. And I don't know if anybody, if everybody, if they can't get out and vote, I mean, which is the only reason he won the election, by the way. I mean, I think it's 50% of this country did not vote. And and everybody said, you know, the November midterms, I mean, it has to go, it has, you know, we'll see. I mean, if it doesn't, we're... One of my things that I've, for years, many, many years have been saying, we need, we need a none of the above to vote for. Because I think if <laughs> in the, that last election, I think Trump got elected because... There were so many people who were so disgusted with Hillary Clinton yeah. that they just couldn't stomach voting for her. Yeah, that's true. Not to mention that because at best people were, were ambivalent about her, that they couldn't bring themselves to vote. Yeah, at all. And that was the only reason why Trump got in. Yeah. So if we had a none of the above to affirmatively vote for, yeah. we probably would have had like 75 to 80% voting for none of the above. Yeah. And it would be like in Europe when they have no confidence votes. Right, right. And it's like, that's that's basically saying, out with the mother yeah, yeah. Out with all those mother <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you literally mean none of the above? Or literally. Literally. Interesting. Literally. Oh, I see what you, yeah. I get it, yeah. Absolutely. So that, yeah, it's a vote of no confidence. Or institute instant runoff voting so that you can vote your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really... But you also have to get rid of the Electoral College. Yes. I mean, that's... Obviously. Which, do you know, I did some little research about the Electoral College, and there's sort of... I think there are two minds of it. One of them said that it was basically invented by slave owners. It was was made because they didn't believe that people who had the right to vote would make the right decision 
or something. Well, actually, I th- it was that the southern slaveholding population right. and people who were invested in that were afraid that as the country was expanding, that the north would gain, That's what would it was. accept, yeah. would grow faster That's what it and was. more yeah. than the south. That's right. That's what it was, exactly. But don't quote me on that. No, that is that's exactly what it was. Okay, but it's interesting. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a bad system, and that's so similar to what's happening now. It's this capitulation, or at best, compromising with something that's outright evil. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. Like that's what's ha- like. Why is that happening? It doesn't have to do with the players necessarily. It's that paradigm that is so skewed, it institutionalized. Heartless thoughtlessness. Yeah, I, it's just, extra, it's, I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, are these people from another planet and they, they can go home after all this is over? Like, they're, <laughs> they're people who are living on another planet. They're, they're living divorced and disconnected from their and own so, selves. But what is it? But is it because, but, but what's keeping them doing? Is it money? Is it only money? I get, I our, culture, our culture is designed to support that. It feeds it. Consumerism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's consumerism. It's Ambition, yeah. competition. Yeah. It, it feeds that yeah. disconnected, dissociated part of ourselves yeah. to continue spiraling further and further yeah. out into yeah. oblivion yeah. and never have to ever come back or yeah. even think about it until our deathbed, and then it's too late. And even though deathbed. personally, personally, you can, you can maybe have a moment of redemption, but it doesn't have any effect on the rest of the world. <laughs> Well, that's all. That's, you're the only one that matters. Don't you know that, Tony? What's wrong with you? It's all about you, babe. Unfortunately, that's the truth. That's what it boils down to. <laughs> but by the same token, if that's all true, I'm playing a devil's advocate a little bit. Why do we or why do people like us think the way we do if, if – this is a really hard thought to put into words. But if – if it's in place already, and I think it's you know it's not new. I mean, this has been you know in the in the works for a while. This whole turnover of, of ideology and what's what's really important and all that stuff. But why is it? Why do people? Is it just economic and and, and class difference that makes one group of people think one way and then the other group of people think the other way? Like, what is it? Well, just think about the line: when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. But uh, when you have a lot. You have a lot to lose. And those people are living embodiments of fear right. who, whose every motivation is, is hinged to security and control. Right. And they will do that at any cost. Right. And they would essentially sell their soul and their grandmothers down the river just for that. Even their children. And, they, and their children. That's the, they, the way they care about their children is, I'm leaving this huge trust fund yeah. for them so that they will survive. Of course, they never think about that they have nothing to live for. They have right. no world where they can actually be a real human being. Right, right. They've long since forgotten or been disconnected from that world. It's all about security, yeah. economic security, yeah. and every other delusion of security yeah. and control, yeah. which I think after a while, anybody who hasn't grown up with a silver spoon or, or a gated community around them knows that there's no such thing. But that's most people, right? For me it is, but I grew up very poor. 
Yeah, but I'm but I'm saying that most people did not grow up in. It's one percent. But I don't know. I don't know about it's most people 1%, anymore. It's called one percent, though. I mean, for a reason. It's one percent. But I I just don't know any of those dynamics because I'm in the bottom, bottom of the level of the ninety nine percent. So Damn. I have no perspective of the entire universe <laughs> above me. Can I smoke? <laughs> Oh, man, yeah. Uh, so what do you do? Okay, so the, and so this was the question, like, okay, what can we as writers do in a world in which the truth doesn't matter and fake news and blah, blah, blah. Or blah, that blah, your I mean, audience is kind of limited. Yeah. Our, our choir is, is kind of <laughs> yeah, we insignificant. Yeah, we've been singing to them for a really long time. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So there has to be a parent. But our choir deserves some entertainment and some edification and they deserve that but what can we do for the greater good and how can we penetrate that notion i'm not smart enough to know that but i'm sure God. i don't think anybody oh, does so somebody has to be smart i enough. think some people are committed enough to do what it takes to get there i was just saying this i was having a conference with a student and i was saying we were talking about sub um it wasn't a conference. It was the class I was teaching about subtext. And I was asking this woman, like, what is, if you can identify it, what is, what would be the subtext for something that you're writing about? And by that, all I mean is what sort of keeps you up at night? What is a question that you haven't resolved or are trying to resolve? Because or articulated. Or articulated. And that's really what most writers are after. I mean, that's yeah. the reason why people write anything. Because right. they want to know, they want to figure something out. They want to take that, that juicy amorphous and you can't quite get your hands on it and, and articulate it or make it real yeah i mean isn't that what, what all of us are doing with our lives yeah. or at least those of us who are who are actually alive or, and awake yeah and awake absolutely. yeah exactly yeah exactly i mean yes. even if we're not writers yes absolutely yeah. but I, when i asked this question i was thinking you know what are they for me and i, th I thought um like what are, what are some of the things that I wish I had done, you know, that I'm not doing in my own life to have even more of an open mind? Uh, that's actually a subject. And one of those is like watching Fox News or doing any of that stuff that I would right. never do because, you know, I'm right. a diehard liberal. And, you know, like I've gone on all these protests for one thing or another. And, you know, I've been involved with Eve Ensler for quite a long time. And I love her work. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. She actually wrote a really good book called Insecure at Last. But the great book of hers is called In the Body of the World. I just love the way she speaks. I mean, yeah, I, played, I played a lot of her stuff on my show oh, just because I just you? find her, 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 she's so passionate. And I had to tell her that. And Even I have been friends for 30 years. She's one of my best friends. Um, I'm not always, I'm not in her army all the time. But I always know what she's up to, particularly with the writing. Because actually I edit some of the stuff that she writes. There was a new vagina monologues that came out that... She put in two two more monologues or something like that, but and she just had a birthday party. She lives um, she just bought a place in Hudson, Hudson, Kingston, New York. It's near Woodstock. It's a beautiful house. It's stone, I think. Well, it's great that she she can afford to live a, oh, a she, nice lifestyle. It is, and you know, and I mean, she's done so much work, and she's been through so I, much. I know, I know, and I love I love when people get wealthy that way. It's yeah. really true. I mean, she's completely somebody deserves, who actually deserves. Yeah, it. totally, and yeah. she's. And she's the same person I knew 30 years ago. 
And there's a great story about her where Mary Oliver, who's a, a poet, probably the most successful, if you could believe, you know, oxymoron successful poet. Yeah. But she is in this country. She writes, I think she comes out with at least two books of something a year. She's also very old. But she's written some wonderful, wonderful poetry. There is a conference that happens on the West Coast every year. It's a women's conference. I don't know the name of it, but it usually is spearheaded by or organized by uh, Maria Shriver, who I actually really like. I just think she's cool. I don't know what her politics are, but I just every time I've seen her and heard her, I thought she, she was like smart and cool. And she invited Eve, and she invited a couple of other people to speak. And Mary Oliver, I think, was actually one of the... Yeah, she must have been one of the speakers. Mary Oliver didn't know anything about Eve Ensler, and she heard her speak. And at the end of Eve's speech, Eve is walking down, you know, in backstage on these stairs, at the foot of which is Mary Oliver in complete hysteria, crying like... Oh my God, who are you? I never heard of you. I, I never heard of you. Who are you? Oh my God, everything you said, you're so amazing. I love you. And Eve knew who she was because Eve reads a lot of poetry, actually. And she said, oh, thank you, thank you, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so skip ahead, I don't know, three or four months later. Part of what was in Eve's speech was abuse. I mean, because that's really her subject. I mean, mm-hmm. she was very abused as a child. Yeah. She talks about it all the time. And her whole thing about women, I mean, that whole, her whole movement against the violence against women yeah. comes from the violence, you know, enacted upon her, her obviously. That's why it's organic. And she that's knows from where. Throughout the entire world. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, she travels all, she spends most of her time in the Congo, actually, or has been for many years. So Mary Oliver started writing these poems about like these really she I would not call her a dark poet in general but she started writing you know Eve's speech really tapped into something in her psyche and Mary Oliver started writing these extraordinary poems about family secrets and all this stuff and there was an interview that Shriver did with Mary in Oprah's magazine and she talks about that she said I met Eve Ensler and and so they became really good friends and which is really funny when you think about it Mary Oliver and Eve Ensler just there's something funny about it I don't know it's hard to see them together but but now it makes perfect sense and Mary Oliver gave a reading at the Y two or three years ago and Eve actually introduced her I just love that story I mean talk about you know, it's so genuine and it's so, I mean, there's a really great case of somebody really helping another human being in their journey to self-discovery or whatever. And, you know, nobody needs to get credit for it. I mean, it just makes for a really good story. Eve would be the last person probably to tell you that story because of her humility. She told it to me and poets. It's a great poem. You know, it's a great story to tell poets. But anyway, so... One of the things about her, even though, you know, I love that we're talking about her because she would love that we're talking about <laughs> her, actually. I don't have to tell her. Seriously, I'll send you the link. Well, for me, any excuse to talk more about her is great. Yeah, really, me too. Cause, and there's, there's some great stories. She's just... She's, she, she's one of the great warriors yeah, on this planet. she walks the walk. You yeah. Know? She really does. The, the same way... I mean, I, don't, I think there are very few people who, who are up at that level. Absolutely. Adrian, and I'm really lucky to have known two of them, her and Adrienne Rich. Adrienne, which was the same exact person. I, I knew her for 40 years. I'm 60. You know, I knew I met her when I was 15. Never changed. I mean, 
of course she changed somewhat, but she was really they don't get watered the core. down. Yeah. yeah, the core and the fame and fame. You know what is considered to be fame and success is something that never touched her because that's not her definition of it. Nor is it the definition of Eve's. In other words, these are people that would be doing whatever they were doing, whether they were being paid or or well known or not. They were on a mission. They didn't care about having a career. They're warriors, like you're saying, and they're really there. There aren't many. Larry Kramer, I think, or or to use another term that generally isn't used in our neck of the woods, genuine saints. Yeah, I mean, saint yeah. sainthood actually would apply. Yeah, in this in these <laughs> I love cases. the way you say that. Your intonation is so. Good. I mean, sainthood. It's not my realm. I mean, I'm not religious in no, the no, slightest. No, no, no. You don't have to be religious to be a saint. But yeah, they are. And, yeah. and, I, really, and I think Larry Kramer has been in his life. A real trailblazer, a real saint. Who? Larry Kramer, okay. who invented ACT UP. I mean, basically started ACT UP and the gay men's health crisis. Um, has written some great things in his life, and he's written some real trash. Um, he is the only, but he, <laughs> but he truly was the angriest. I mean, he, he basically single-handedly got laws change. I mean, you know, he really fought and fought. I mean, that's the, that's the fight of his life. I mean, AIDS was the fight of his life. He has two great plays that came out of that, The Normal Heart and um, The Destiny of Me, it's called. Another play that, that should be revived. It's a really great play. But he, I think he was one. I think um, it's, that's a good thing to think about. Like, who are the living saints? Can we think of other living saints, do you think? Nah. nah. Why bother? Why bother? It'll just take away from... Boy, did you just bring it down. Woo! That'll just take away from, from all the other directions we can go in. Oh, that's true. No, come on now. Yeah, I mean, we could do that, but there just aren't that many people who really qualify up at in that... Well, we might not know who they are. Right. We may not know. We right, not exactly. Know because are. the most genuine of them... That's humility. Know. Yeah. Right. They're humble. Right. Real saints are humble. Yeah. And she is, actually. And so is Adrian. She just I has mean, had a lot of publicity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because of the word vagina. Right, Pretty exactly. Much. If it wasn't for that word, she probably would never have, yeah. have hit, hit the it's big pro- time. It's really true. Which is wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. And I don't know if you find, I mean, I've noticed how it's really become part of the culture. You hear it referred to in, in many, many contexts. You know, if it wasn't for... The vagina mods, or you hear people joking about it. It's become a trope. It really has. It's really funny. I think she's kind of over it. But it spawned V-Day, which is the movement that she started. I mean, all of the money for that resistance movement is really from productions of the vagina mods all around the world. I mean, it's still being performed. They perform at a lot of colleges. At Hunter, they performed it whenever I do readings at colleges, which is rare. And by the way, if there's anybody out there... From colleges, um, I, I'm a really good reader of poetry. So, like, you know, all you have to pay is for the flight, hotel, and a $2,000 stipend. I'm cheap. <laughs> is that cheap? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, it's, I don't know. it's not cheap. It's not, but it's not a lot. Yeah. You know what? I, I like really successful poets that with that horrible oxymoron. But what they like, Mary Carr probably got at least $5,000 for that reading. At least, probably 10 She probably got the, the heavy heads get, they have fucking agents. They're, book, they're, they're not called agents. They're called booking managers that get poets and writers' readings. Yeah. And negotiate the prices. Yeah, and negotiate the prices. And the thing that's so f***ed up about it is that there's one in particular, and I will, I will name it, goddammit. It's called Blue Flower Arts. I won't name the person. But she's a f***ing 
money grabbing. You know, she is actually. There's a poet who shall remain nameless that showed up at, at a reading in which she was getting a fair amount of money, and this booking agent from this organization was there, and this poet said, "Oh, hello," and she said, "Oh, hi, I'm representing you for this reading." She said, "Huh?" Like she knew nothing about it, but she was getting a cut of whatever this poet was getting paid. So every poet that I know that is in any way successful has one of these people. I have to confess, I'm trying to get one of them. I'm getting the, but I'm getting the one. I'm trying to get the the low one on that she just started. She only has about five or six clients. So my cool factor isn't completely like rusted away. Okay, I'm still cool. I haven't sold out completely. But if she's gonna get, I can't get readings. I couldn't get a goddamn teaching job. I taught at Sarah Lawrence College for three years. It doesn't get better than that unless it's Princeton or fucking Yale, right? That's a really good school. I could not get an interview at another school after that job. Is that wild? Yeah. I have no idea. It was my first teaching job. That's one thing, obviously, that could be considered. But the fact that I couldn't even get an interview... I, I just found it kind of amazing. And, but, I mean, I did end up teaching. I was, I, you know, I've been teaching here forever. I mean, I was teaching at Sarah Lawrence while I was teaching here. This was in 1990, from 90 to 93. So I've been in and out of Goddard since 1990. I mean, come on. I don't have a fucking building named after me or a, a picture of a on some art exhibit. Like, <laughs> come on. Give me a break. I love Goddard. I never give it money, though, because you they never have, pay me enough. You must have stepped in something along the way. <laughs> what, here? No, I don't know where. Oh. <laughs> you know, people talk about luck or karma or things like that, and who knows? Who knows what, why somebody I am stumbles firm... into the gravy train, and some people, no matter uh, what they do, just can't, can't get the break. Okay, I got to gotta confess something to you, a couple of things. I am a complete believer, as hokey and stupid, and no, we're not stupid, but as hokey as this may sound, I am a complete believer in that you make your own destiny. I completely believe that. I completely believe that you create your own life. I really do. So why is that hokey? Why do you think that's hokey? Because you hear it when it comes out of the mouths of white, you know, boys in suits at a podium. It feels so good. Or, or and, new age Yeah, women. and that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just, that, that was a picture I had in my head, so yeah. forgive me, I'm being biased, but whatever. No, I, I cringe. I, I mention these things in a very circumspect way for the exact same reason. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I totally believe in that. And the proof is my own life. I have a life that I have lived for 63 years. Some of it's been wonderful. Some of it's been awful, like everybody, right? All of it makes a weird kind of sense when I think about it, particularly the things that happen to me that are serendipitous, all the accidents that usually result, almost always result after me taking a risk of something that I just couldn't, I, I really don't know if I should do this. I really don't know. Every time I've asked that question and actually walked through the fire, it's been nothing but pleasure. It was the right decision. Unfortunately, I do not do that enough. I actually think that if I followed my heart every single moment, I would have a much bigger life. So because I don't have that life, I am, after right after this residency, please don't laugh at me, <laughs> I am doing the landmark forum. You, you mentioned that in the Oh, did I? You've okay. already broken that ice. But, <laughs> but before I lose this, yeah. I would love for you to tell me a story about 
a time when you took a risk and but it came out and it came out. Oh yeah, totally. I was living in New York. If this, uh, the year is, I got sober in 1984. This is 1989, 1990. So I wasn't sober that long. It's four or five years sober. I became, uh, I, I thank, thankfully, I started becoming very serious about writing. I hadn't been for those five years. I didn't really write anything. And when I was drinking, I wrote music mostly. I never wrote poetry or anything else. So I was putting together an anthology of poems about AIDS that I knew was going to get published. But I was also really thinking hard about doing a first book and getting a first book of poems done. And... I applied for a fellowship at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, which takes 10 writers and 10 visual artists every year and gives them a place to live and some money to live on every month. The grand total of like three, I think it literally is $350 a month, which is absolutely nothing, but whatever. The risk, and I, I wanted to apply, but I was really scared First of all, that I wouldn't get in. And then if I did get in, I had $2,000 to my name. And I was newly sober. And I was really, I did not know if being newly sober, I should make such a radical change in my life. I was very serious about sobriety. I did everything that everybody said. You know, I was in a rehab in Long Island for, God, it feels like two or three months. And it was pretty rigorous. So I came out. I was not crunchy granola sober. I was. I went to three meetings a day. I shared meetings. I spoke at meetings. It was really my life, you know, getting sober in those early days. So I talked to a friend of mine. Well, not a friend. He was my counselor in rehab. I was actually in love with him, which is a whole other story. Boy, did that end badly. Um, <laughs> I didn't get to kiss him. Um, and I talked to him on the phone, and I said, you know, I, I have this great opportunity. I'm going to apply, but I'm really scared. I don't know what to do. What if I get it? But I don't think I'll get it, blah, blah, blah. And he said, there's a particular 12-step fellowship. And he said, do they have that fellowship there? And I said, yes. And he said, well, what are you worried about? As it happened, I got in, but the only reason I got in was because they choose 10 fellows, and then they choose three alternates in case one of those fellows can't do it. And they actually went down to the third alternate which was me. So I got in, but that was a big risk for me to do. And it turned out to be by far the best thing I ever did for myself as a writer. I had nothing but seven months to do whatever I wanted. And I wrote my first book and I ended up living in Provincetown for three years. And then I got a job at Sarah Lawrence. And without that trajectory, I wouldn't even thought of applying to Sarah Lawrence. And the only reason I got the job at Sarah Lawrence, by the way, was because the guy who hired me or wanted me to apply, it was funny, I applied for it, but it was very clear to me from the very beginning, there was no way I wasn't getting the job, which I really couldn't believe, but I just knew, the energy around it was way too positive. But he said, you know, I've always admired your work. He knew some of my work, and I'd been writing now for two or three years. He said, I was just waiting for you to come out with a book. And as soon as you came out with a book, that you know, I was going to hire you. And so that path was a really interesting and wonderful, you know, I met a lot of great people. And then it changed. I mean, what changed really was meeting the guy who's to become my husband. If you're just joining me, I'm speaking with Michael Klein. He's a writer, poet, and professor of writing at various colleges around the Northeast. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour.
I applied for a fellowship at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, which takes 10 writers and 10 visual artists every year and gives them a place to live and some money to live on every month. As it happened, I got in, and it turned out to be by far the best thing I ever did for myself as a writer. I had nothing but seven months to do whatever I wanted. And I wrote my first book, and then I got a job at Sarah Lawrence. And without that trajectory, I wouldn't even thought of applying to Sarah Lawrence. And, you know, I met a lot of great people. And then it changed, meeting the guy who was to become my husband. My life really became very different after that, in some good ways and in some really not good ways at all. If I had to do it again, I would have done it again. I don't think I would have stayed as long as I have. We've been together for 16 years. It's a very different relationship. We don't live together. We had a real reconciliation this fall. He was in New York, and he lived there for six months after he had spent all his time living in Provincetown working. And he comes from a financial background in, in terms of his work life. And he couldn't get a job in New York, but he got a job in Provincetown, so, which was not in the, the plan. And so he's trotting off to Provincetown again for this summer where he has work. And then hopefully when he comes back in the fall, he'll try again and get a job. But when he was here in the fall, I thought we got along really well. The best, actually, that we'd ever gotten along. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be fine. I was a little trepidatious. I mean, for one thing, he's diagnosed bipolar like two years ago. And it's kind of scary in some ways. It was terrible at the beginning because he didn't know how to medicate him. I mean, it was truly harrowing. I thought, I really, either I was going to leave or he was going to kill himself. Those were the two choices. Neither of those happened, thank God. But it was really treacherous territory that we were both in. And it was in Provincetown alone. I felt horrible for him. But he was so out of it, he didn't really care either I felt or how he felt. He kept telling me he wanted to die. That, those are the extent of our fun. I mean, I went for, th- for six months like that. And I, all my friends were telling me, you have to stay, you know, you had to, you had to end the relationship. How in the f*** am I going to end a relationship with somebody who's trying to commit suicide every day? I'm sorry. I mean, how heartless are you? Come on. I get it. I know you're looking out for me, but that's, it's really not the time to say anything like that. And by the way, it's not like I'm trying to salvage the relationship. I don't give a if we have the relationship at all. I don't want him to kill himself. I, I actually, in retrospect, I don't think he would kill himself. I don't think he has that kind of personality, whatever kind of personality one has about suicide. But I actually think that there isn't a suicidal personality. I don't think, I think some people commit suicide or think about suicide the day, the day they commit suicide. I don't think, I really do. I don't think it's... It's timing. Yeah, it's, it's all timing. It's, l- it's sort it? of the luck of the draw yeah. with, with timing. I, I really and think, and I think that's actually true about just about everything in life. Yeah, actually it is. It's, it is timing. Timing is everything. The, the most elusive of the arts. <laughs> yeah. And death. Yeah. But um, you die a lot in life, you know. Yeah. I've had a lot of deaths in my life. I've died a lot. I've died probably four or five times. But this year, it's I'm 63, which is the Saturn return year. You know about Saturn returns? I've lived through two relationships where my girlfriends at the time were going through their first Saturn return. Oh, wow. The first one was unbelievable. Were they nightmare. 21 or? Around 27. 27. And she was a classic. I mean, a true classic Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. I mean, I was like, I thought I was insane. And I, went, I started going to a therapist because I thought. There was you. This, this can't be real. 
<laughs> right. I thought it was me, yeah. but I quickly realized this therapist couldn't do anything do for me and, and that I was out there. Don't you think for myself? Do you ever? I have been having those moments, or at least thinking about those moments that you have in your life, where you actually think that reality actually is the way you think it is. That well, when you're no, young, in other words, that yeah. there, there aren't two versions of it. Right. Well, when you're young, you don't know any better. Yeah, of course. It, well, it is the only reality. Yeah. I actually think the re and that's why when you're young, you're the realest that you'll ever be in your life. In a in a way. Well, you haven't shut down. Well, unless you've been beaten with a in certain twin. ways. In certain ways. But the one well, what was your childhood like? Did you have a nice, easy childhood? Oh, no. Okay, so we have been beaten down e yeah, even as young. So but I know people who, believe it or not, I do know people who had very nice childhoods. Okay. And they're, and they're fine. And they're, not, I mean, obviously they're fine, but they're, actually, they're, they're thinking, they're interesting, they're artistic. You know what I mean? Well, that's it's great. not like every artist has to come out of a f***ed up home. I don't believe in that. Well, I think nowadays, <laughs> the newer generations are fully capable of having that experience. Yeah, when it comes to true. our generation, yeah. that's very oh, rare. Yes. It's so I, rare. In yeah, fact, it's, it's so rare that I've never – I don't think I've ever encountered it. Yeah, I, I guess you're right. When I, I, I wasn't thinking of people my age, but I think you're probably right. That's true. It was – what year were you born? I'm three years behind you. Oh, you are? Okay, so you're 60. Yeah. Uh -huh. So you were born in 57. Yeah, same generation, yeah. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Same generation, same part of the world. Yeah, isn't that wild? <laughs> did you go to Woodstock? No. I, I was did. too young for that. Well, you, three oh, years, yeah, you were. Three years, years, a big deal three years makes a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, you were aware of, of Kennedy's assassination. Yeah. I was still too young to really to get that. Yeah. Well, I was – I can't remember how old I was, but, I, I, but the, the memory of the announcement coming over the loudspeaker in the public school that I was attending at the time is so vivid. To this day, it's wild. I mean, I think probably up to that point, it had been probably the weirdest, hor most horrible thing that had happened on a national level during my childhood that I could think that I knew about. Because I certainly wasn't reading about politics or anything. I didn't know what was going on in the rest of the world beyond 12th Street. But Woodstock, no, I was 15. In 1969, my parents, who were not hippie parents, by the way, they bought me the tickets for my, my birthday is August 17th, which was one of the days it was on. And they bought my twin brother and I tickets to this lovely little music festival upstate New York that, you know, it wouldn't have that many people. And you, if you have tickets, I'm sure it'll be easy. I mean. Right. If it's an outdoor festival, yeah, it's got to be all right. It's going to be great. You know, what's the problem? Man, not only did we not need tickets, I mean, they stormed the Bastille. Like, it was, you know, it was totally free. So anybody who bought tickets, it didn't matter. I met, I mean, <laughs> it is really one of the moments of my life. It's well, 15, so it wasn't a Saturn return year. But it is a true marker. I hooked up for some weird reason with Ken Kesey and his gang were there. I guess it was the Merry Pranksters. Mm -hmm. And they were camping out where I was camping out. I heard Joan Baez and I guess Creedence Clearwater Revival and some other group rehearsing at like 4.30 in the morning. We got there two days early. We saw them finish building the stage. It hadn't been a madhouse yet. But the thing was, when thousands of people, you know, converts on this little town of Bethel, New York, they had moved the location. It was never in Woodstock. There was only, you're not going to believe this, there was one 
country store and no concession stands, yeah. basically. And, and, like, people were starving. I mean, yeah. they had concession stands, but the concession stands sold tie-dye shirts and musical instruments. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't sell an orange or a f***ing slice of bread. We were starving. I can't remember how we ate. I do know that we were tripping our f***ing off most of the time. And that my parents were, they were so scared. They were sure we were going to be killed. And then we hitchhiked to the town of Woodstock. Don't ask me why. We were with people that we just ended up hitchhiking to Woodstock. None of us had any money. And the way we we got money was we would go into restaurants, like booth counters, and take tips off the tables (laughs) and the counters and shit. And, you know, I mean, uh, there's a little bit of criminal activity in my past. Oh, and then I got arrested or pulled into the station for hitchhiking in front of the station. Who knew that that was a cop station that I was hitchhiking in front of to get back to New York? But after that, the Woodstock Festival was really something else. It really, it was, because I had been to the Beans in Central Park, you know, when they had every, I think, Easter, they had one, and... They were called Beans. That's what they were called. And the fountain used to be in Central Park was a real hangout for. And I went to music and art, so like a lot of us would hang out there on the weekends. So I was used to crowds in a certain way, you know. I mean, which I'm actually not used to now. It's really funny as I've grown older, I detest them. I'm the same way. Oh, it's hate just them. the worst. I hate them. Which is why I I can't deal with. Big protests, either. Yeah, that's part. That's that's actually part of my reason. Despite the fact that I grew up in Manhattan. Yeah, I hear you. I I don't know what. I mean, and maybe it's something with age. I don't know. I mean, how many people can you be with in a lifetime? I mean, I've been thousands and thousands. You know, I've had sex with thousands of people for sake. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, gang. For those who (laughs) listen, that's not true at all. But it's a good line. It is a good Well, speaking of lines, I, it came from a, I had a one-man show that I did at the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater in 1994, I think. And it was, it was a commission. The guy liked my poetry. You know who it was? It was Howard Zinn's son. It's a guy named Jeff. So you know Howard Zinn, right? The, he yeah, the people's, of And um, he, if Jeff Zinn is a theater guy. And he, him and his other guy named Gip Hop or Gip Hoppy run this thing called the Wellfleet Habitats Theater in uh, in Wellfleet. I don't, Jeff isn't involved in it anymore, but it, it was a commission, and the play, and the thing that I wrote was called 10,000 Hands Have Touched Me. And it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And afterwards, you know, of course, I'm walking through Provincetown on Commercial Street after one of the performances, and some guy comes running up to me, and he touches me, he goes, 10,002. I said, I get the f- away from me. It was not my title. I stole the title. But it was a piece of writing that I did that many people hated. Like, even among my friends, they thought it was really, it was very cold and very judgmental. And as one writer friend of mine put it, she said, you're cannibalizing from other work. And I said, we always cannibalize from other work. I mean, what are you talking about? But she kind of had a point. But it was something that I knew was going to be performed, so it was written in a very different way. You know, it was it was very poetic, but it rhymed. It did, it did a lot of things that I generally don't do. And I had as the soundtrack this extraordinary album that I can't remember how I came upon it, but I compare it to Kind of Blue as one of the classic jazz albums. It's an album by Wayne Shorter called Speak No Evil. Do you know that recording by any chance? Every cut is amazing. It's one of his iconic albums. And I think it came out, 
You know, actually, Kind of Blue was recorded on my birthday. Not the year, but the date, which I, I always love that little... But it is such an extraordinary album, and each cut is a completely different mood, which worked perfectly for this piece, because I think there were eight or nine sections of this piece, and I wanted to make them each very different in terms of mood. But it was about sex. It was autobiographical. It wasn't my best writing. I do admit it was not my best writing. But, you know, it was where I was at the time. I mean, I've written, I write a lot of shit. I mean, this happened to be a piece of shit that got performed. I mean, unfortunately. And I performed it. Um, David Drake, actually, I think at one time wanted to perform it. He's always a rather well-known, you know, performance artist himself. He teaches performance art. He wrote the night that Larry Kramer kissed me. And now he's directing plays in Provincetown mostly. But he does a lot of acting. So there were people who liked it, but it wasn't my shining hour. However, it did give me insight into the next thing that I was going to write. I think it was written after my first book had been published. So it's like the second thing I wrote, like that was, you know, a lot of pages. Let's put it that way. I performed it here, though, during one of the residencies. And people really liked it, actually. A faculty member came back. He, she, 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 he shall remain nameless and said, you gave me a lot. <laughs> Which... I didn't quite know how to take. It's like a friend of mine had a blurb that read, (laughs) she wrote a blurb for somebody's book that said, she really got it done. (laughs) It wasn't, it was, thank God it wasn't my book. And there was another friend of mine, old friend, but we haven't been speaking for some reason for a long time, a poet named Jean Valentine, had a blurb on one of her books in the 60s, and it said, for a woman poet, she doesn't mess around. (laughs) Which, of course, means she writes like a man. (laughs) But I'm like, you're not laughing. You don't think that's funny? I get nervous. Come on now. (laughs) What is it? Is it, well, what, you don't think it's funny? It's just because it's misogynistic? No. I, no oh, okay. Nothing shocks me. So, <laughs> so if I don't. Oh, that's too bad. Really? You haven't been shocked by Trump? No. Really? No. Oh, you, you, maybe you're in, a saint. No, I'm not a saint, but I grew up in Manhattan. You know, I, I was a latchkey kid on the streets from an early age, so, unprotected, yeah. unfiltered. Really? The whole thing. What, at, what, from what age? Five or six. Really? Yeah. What, why? What was Because my mother is bipolar and, and just... Nuts. You know, alternating from being a very intelligent, coherent, educated woman to being completely gone or nuts. And my father was poor and he had to work. Wow. And I went back and forth. They had an f- explosive divorce when I was three years old. So, you know, it started early. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, as, as, as awful as I'm sure a lot of that was, it really, it really fortified you, too. Yeah, absolutely. It? It, it created a, a rather solid, strong, very shaky foundation. Yeah, but very sensitive, obviously. Oh, yeah. Very sensitive. Plus, my father had a, a really dark temper early on. Uh-huh. And I, my antenna were up, you know, sensing what could be coming next. Plus, growing up on the streets of New York City as a small, blonde, white kid in a mostly immigrant, you know, uh, in the w- East Village. Oh, were you in the East Village? Okay. Did you go to public school there? Yeah. 
And did you ever go to college? You, what, did you go here? I didn't go here. Uh -huh. I never went here. Did you ever go to college? I did. I dropped out. My, my initial – originally went to college because I didn't want to deal with the real world. I didn't want to get a job. I didn't want right. to face the bullshit reality that everyone else was dancing to. So I thought, I'll just go to college. Check it out. No, I'll do it. Oh, okay. I can probably bullshit my way. I mean, I bullshit my way through high school. I'll bullshit my way through college. I'll probably, you know, get a teaching job in college or whatever, and I'll never have to deal with the real world. <laughs> First semester, I realized academics was <laughs> not for you. the opposite direction for me. I wanted the real thing, right? And I dropped out. And I realized if I didn't drop out, I would be leaving school with debt. Uh -huh. So I got out, and I hitchhiked out to. California, ah. where my mother was, and she was begging me to come visit her. And every time she, she'd be begging me to come visit her, I'd be like, forget it. You're the last person I want to <laughs> see or have anything to do with. But at this point, I was like, I was out of money, couldn't get a job. I was in Boulder, Colorado. And I was like, okay, I'll go out to visit for two weeks. That's it. I never left. Well, well for years, yeah. She happened to be living in this amazing community there, and I fell in love with the community oh, and the really? other people. But she was still nuts. Ah. She was still nuts. But, was, it uh, a, was it a um, commune? It was sort of, there were like a dozen houses uh -huh. within a, a half square mile area, and we were all living communally. Oh, that's really cool. Where people were just experimenting. It was just total. Yeah, it's it great. You're just letting so it all hang out and, and just. Everything was fair game, and everybody was checking everything out and experimenting with everything imaginable. Eh. No limits. Eh. And uh, it was a blast. Did it help your mother's mental health, you think? Or was she yeah. just... Yeah, it, it helped. She had people around her who, who would judge her a lot less <laughs> than everybody else, <laughs> even though she drove them crazy, too. <laughs> That's great. And when she lost it, she really lost it. <laughs> what you mean when she was or abusive? Yeah, she yeah, she, was. she would be ab abusive and cold. I mean, like mm. divorced from any connection to mm. humanity. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, that's hard. It was bizarre, and <laughs> I dealt with that when I was five, six, yeah, seven so years old. Reminiscent. Yeah, we would fight. We would have knockdown, dragout, screaming fights. And then one time, well, I think when I was six or seven, she hit me. And I hit her back. I was only a little kid, so it, I doubt that it hurt much. But she collapsed on her bed crying. Like, in shock. I'm in sure. shock. <laughs> so it's, it was a battle. Sounds like a great movie. Did you, have you written about it? Well, I've told stories about it you have. to my daughter. Oh, how old is your daughter? 41. What? You have a four? You're, oh, my God, <laughs> you're kidding me. How? Yeah, I didn't. I mean, after my experience as a child, I did not want to have a child. Because, I not think so. Because I'm yeah. like, no way am I going not, to. Not just that, but the whole world was so f***ed up. Yeah. I didn't want to bring a child into this world. Not more than. Was and more back then, I mean, compared to now, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> it was a piece of cake. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say. My husband says this all the time about how, oh, things aren't so bad. It's, they're just different. You know, it's not that, you know, everything's going to be fine, blah, 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 blah. Well, hopefully he's right. Well, hopefully he is. I mean, but I, yeah, hopefully he is. Maybe there's some. I can take that tack too. But when there's something on the line, like the idea of having a child and bringing it and subjecting that child to this world, I don't have that kind oh, of confidence. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If I'm, it's me, just me, yeah. I'm like, 
I'm optimistic, but yeah. there's nothing on the line. I'm already I've been on the line. I've been beaten yeah, down yeah. and destroyed. I've died so many times. Yeah. And somehow I'm still here. Yeah. That yeah, it's no big deal. But I, I, yeah, it's going to sound awful to say this, but I, I actually, I, I'm in sh- whenever I see women who are pregnant, I'm kind of in shock. <laughs> I'm amazed. I really. It depends on the woman. But some women, I'm like, God, you have a lot of faith. <laughs> or yeah, you exactly. really have a lot of faith in, the, in this yeah, world, in you humanity. You think he's going to grow up or she's going to grow up to be or, or if it's somebody who I know and I really respect. Then it's I'm okay. Like, I'm like, you're one fucking courageous woman. It is courageous. It really is. I also think, and as I follow that line of thinking, I also think that you need that you have to take a test if you want to be parent. And it has nothing need, to do with intelligence, right? You have to be creative, though. I think would-be parents need to be educated in a way that's that's beyond our exactly. ivory tower intellectual exactly. bullshit. Exactly. Well, that's the people only thing. need to to become grounded in the three levels of intelligence. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The complete, and what, it's, what it means to really live. Yeah, to be a real human being. Yeah, to be a real human being. That is, and to be able to recognize beings. a real human being in everybody exactly. around you, no matter how f***ed up they are, exactly. including people like Donald Trump. Yeah, including him. <laughs> but it's funny. Because if, if we can't do that with Donald Trump, then we're f***ed ourselves. We're completely How would fucked. you do I, 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 I agree with you in spirit, but how would that play out? I mean, well, it's not the, how it plays out. It's just that whenever we do that, whenever we divide any part of ourselves from any part of our world, yeah, we're fucked. Yeah, I mean, you as a writer must know that. Yeah, because you write about all the dark elements yeah. in your writing, and yeah. and you have a visceral sense of how it's all part of this this package. Yeah, there's no exclusion. Yeah, and when we do exclude things, and we oh, we all do it, no yeah. matter how high minded we are, compartmentalize or compartmentalize, yeah. we all do that. Yeah. but whenever we do it, we harm ourselves. Yeah, I mean, just as you early, you were joking about that. It's all just about me anyway. Yeah, all we hurt is ourselves. Yeah, but it ripples out to everybody else as well. So we're, we're harming more than just ourselves. Well, maybe that's the problem. I mean, I I, I have a feeling that a lot of Trump's um, you know, psychosis is really sounds from the fact that he's not loved. Absolutely. I mean, by anybody. I mean, what little I've I've heard about his relationship with his father. Oh I my mean, God, it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And the way he treats other human beings as pure objects. I yeah. mean, I don't think there's anybody in his family that he relates to in any way other than as a a thing, yeah. a status symbol, or yeah. you know, having. Beautiful women. I mean, the way he talks about his daughter. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how revealing can you get? I know, but but still, he marches on. <laughs> he does. I mean, he should have stopped then. They should have stopped him then before he got off the bus with Billy well, Bush. America is full of the dumbest oh, no people on the planet. Oh, that's so funny. I was saying that in my class this morning. Like one of my subjects as a writer is why people are so fucking stupid. And I sort of laughed afterwards, and the woman who was I was talking to said, "Oh yeah, that's a really good one." And of course, it has to do with geography, and it has to do with education, and you know all that. But there's something else at work. I mean, blindness is blindness. I'm sorry, that has nothing to do with intelligence. If you don't have the curiosity to know why you or anybody else is living, there's something. That, I don't know if that's a learned behavior. <laughs> 
I don't know where that comes from, but if, it seems to me to be almost an animalistic instinct to know those things, that you treat other people. But think, think about some of the literature, some of the really dark literature you've, you've read in uh-huh. your life yeah. and the horrific stories of people's inhumanity to each other. Yeah. Doesn't that give you a perspective on how this all works? Yeah. Yeah, it does. And and just apply that to humanity as a whole. Yeah. And you can't help but recognize that humanity is at best in its adolescence. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, oh, yeah, at best. And so what can you expect from a, an adolescent? Yeah, a good way of putting it, actually. Well, I hope the adolescent doesn't commit suicide <laughs> or OD. <laughs> May I read a poem? Please. I just I just thought of one in one of my books that I think is is sort of apt to the conversation that we're having. So I thought I'd give it a whirl. <laughs> <laughs> this is called photography. I'm dumb about the world. To me, it always looks haunted, impoverished, especially in snow when it returns to black and white. And sometimes I look and see nothing but the elementary smoke rising from a human village overpopulated and yet undermade. A woman from there is walking down along the side of a road to the next village where she can live without burning. She's a story I make up to go along with the map Andrew shows me of a place I've never been. Without the story, I can't make a meaning for the flat and lettered picture of a place He said he can't believe I don't just see a map for what it is, or a tree just being a tree. And sometimes our two spirits part exactly there. I want to think the world moves just enough beyond the name for what is holding it in, and he wants to think it's not going anywhere. Which is about that thing I was talking about where he thinks, you know, it's just, it's not bad. It's just a different version of the world at the particular time in history or politics. And that also exemplifies that interesting thing, how we think the world is as we think it. And yeah, yet we yeah. encounter other people who obviously think otherwise. Yeah. And how can the twain exist yeah. at the same time? Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, it's true. The other thing, you know, when I keep thinking back to whenever something horrible happens, in, like on the world stage, I always... God, it's so simplistic. I have such a simplistic view sometimes of history and politics because I, I know, I've never had them as subject matter in my psyche, really, until seriously in the last four or five years. I mean, I was not a huge news reader, which is – it is what it was. I don't think it's a good thing or a bad thing necessarily. I don't want to judge The world it. goes on. Yeah, whether regardless. I think about it or yeah, not, so exactly. Th- but the planet spins. <laughs> and <laughs> I love that song. Do you know that song? It's from, Eliza Minnelli sings it, and it's from New York, New York. When you said that, you know what I flashed on was Cabaret. Yeah. Makes the world go round. Zafild. Go around. My name makes the world go around. I think it, Joe Gray. Joe Gray. Lived in the building that I lived in when I was yeah, in Weetot. Oh, we talked about You wrote. Oh, I wrote you it. You mentioned it. So, so if you have a story. Oh, I have a, yeah, I have a story. Well, he's gay. You know that. Well, I suspect, at the very least. (laughs) I sort of lived like a rich kid for a little while because we had some money that my stepfather then lost at the racetrack, which I will (laughs) use seriously. This is absolutely true. And I will use that as a segue in a minute to the racetrack story. But So we were living on Central Park West in a building that had two apartments on the floor. 
four bedrooms, but we weren't rich. And so we had a living room the size of this room in which we had about four pieces of furniture. So it looked cavernous. It was just really strange. And it was $450 a month. And this is in 19, early 60s. Can you imagine? That's a lot of money. For, for then it was, I That's guess. a hell of a lot of money. Was it? Yeah. $450 a month? That's a fortune. I mean, my mother was paying $42 a month, but oh. it was rent control. Oh, my God. So my father rented a whole floor down on East Broadway for $95. That's so amazing. But yeah, I guess it was expensive because the people who lived in that building were rich. B. Arthur lived there. Shelley Winters. Okay. Yeah, it was. It must have been, I guess. We never lived in anything even remotely (laughs) middle or upper class neighborhood. (laughs) Well, it was my last venture, dear, so don't feel so bad. I don't feel bad at all. I visit. I'm not bad, but you know what I'm saying. It was a glimpse into a certain lifestyle. So I guess when we lived there, I was going to music and art. But I remember going up to Joe Gray and asking him. I wanted to be an actor at that point when I grew up. I used to go to American Academy and Neighborhood Playhouse on Saturdays to be an actor. And the reason I never followed through, because I, I probably could have been a working actor if I had followed through. And the reason I didn't is because I hated the people I was around. I mean, I was a kid and these people were so fucking serious about having a career. I wanted to vomit. It's like, I want to get dirty and get, you know, in the street. And I mean, I wasn't a particularly athletic child, but you know, I wanted to go swimming. I wanted to do all sorts of stuff. I certainly didn't want to be cooped up in a room memorizing lines. I mean, I couldn't think of anything more boring. I loved doing it, but I didn't want to work at it. Are you kidding me? (laughs) So, you know, I loved watching it. I mean, I was always, always into the theater, and I still am. So I said to Joe Gray, Mr. Gray, I want to be an actor when I grow up. And he said, oh, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And I said, but you're an actor. And he said, yeah, but it's it's, you you don't want to be an actor. I said, and he wouldn't give me a reason. It was like we're stammering there in front of waiting for the elevator to come. And then I asked to interview him for my school newspaper. And I did do the interview. I cannot remember why. But there was a photograph. I remember this really vividly. There was a photograph of him on his refrigerator. For some reason, I was in his kitchen in a bathing suit. And he had a really big <laughs> he had his speeds. I think that's one of the requirements of, to get into Hollywood. Is he? You, have, you either have to be beautiful, or you have to. Have to oh, be please, Tony oh, Montgomery Cliff. They used, you know what his nickname was? Princess Tiny Meat. He had this Montgomery Cliff. He had the smallest penis in Hollywood. Yeah, but he he had those classic dashing good looks. Of course, that's that's what I'm, I'm saying. You have to be. Oh, beautiful. You have to have some, oh yes, you have to be beautiful yes. or, or have, have a big. big yeah, and there are a lot of big in Hollywood I'm figuratively and physically yeah literally and I being the young homosexual in training that I was I looked at that picture and I thought God I, I remember it being the first time that I actually felt sexually attracted to something it was really funny and it made me very uncomfortable about him I didn't care about having the feelings but I, like I didn't know what to ask him next because we were in the <laughs> middle of the fucking interaction where'd you get such a big did you do exercises <laughs> Whatever you do, when you interview him, don't look at his <laughs> Don't look at his <laughs> it's, big, it's big, man. And then years later, I was driving a taxi. Years later, meaning like I was somewhat of an adult, and I had a job driving a taxi that lasted for about two months. Boy, was that the wrong profession. Oh, my God. I could oh, not imagine did you do doing it? that. No way. Oh. I can't even imagine driving in New York City. What an insane place to drive. But the, a I, cab driver? I was a cab driver, oh, and I, I really f- 
fucked up a lot. I kept going down one-way streets because the sign was too high or something. I mean, I yeah. would never know what the hell. I could not figure out, like, that you could actually tell which way the traffic was going by looking at how the cars were parked. Ah. That's how you can tell, right. right? But I couldn't figure that out. Like, I couldn't figure out that that actually meant that, that, that one way was the, was a particular You just way. weren't hardwired. I wasn't. For that. Ever. <laughs> and one day, I happened to pick up Mrs. Joel Gray, who, by the way, was a beauty. She was in the business, too. Her name was Joe, J-O, Gray. And they also had two adopted. Well, Jennifer Gray, who, Jennifer Gray used to play with my sister. She was a fucking c- <laughs> Okay? She was the brattiest, most... I could not stand here. I used to say to my sister, why do you play with that wench? I must have been 16. She was probably six or seven. You know, and she was this little pretty girl with the little ringlets and the Shirley Temple demeanor. And then she was really critical and, like, nasty to my sister. And my sister also played... Isn't this... This is so odd. My sister also played with Rodney Dangerfield's daughter. And Rodney Dangerfield was married to a woman who looked like Morticia Adams. If you, however you want to imagine Morticia Adams, she looked like, uh, you know, Island of the Lost Souls vampire zombie woman. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, she was like, and to think that this guy who was completely out of his gourd, Rodney Dangerfield, I mean, that guy, the thing about Rodney Dangerfield, he looked exactly how crazy he actually was. You know what I mean? He was the personification of his humor in terms mm-hmm. of the way he looked. He wasn't that well known at that time. And then years later, I see him, you know, he marries this gorgeous, you know, but when he's coming up, it's probably real love at the beginning. So Joel Gray, so that's the Joel Gray story. And then there's a Shelley Winters story, but you hate celebrities. I'm not going to go into I don't yeah. hate celebrities. I'm just not enamored of celebrities, but I love stories. Yes, so. I, I hear it. I, I agree with you, actually, on that. The racetrack, you know, I wrote a whole book about the racetrack. It's called Track Conditions. And it's about, I groomed a horse that won the Kentucky Derby in 1984 called Swale. And he was trained by a trainer who has since died named Woody Stevens, who even before that particular derby was probably the leading trainer in New York. Um, I knew nothing about racehorses. So how did you... My lover boyfriend, and in those days we called them lovers, by Mm -hmm. the way. In those days, we called them lovers. That's a good title, actually, isn't it? Yeah. In those days, we that called is them a lovers. Great. Yeah. Title. I have to remember. I that. endorse that, and I'm a title. Yeah, I know. We talked about it. Yeah, cool. Maybe I'll call something that someday. But anyway, he was sick of my drinking, finally, and he he basically left me and said, "You know, you're destroying yourself. I'm not going to stand around and watch." Meanwhile, he was drinking as much as I was, but it didn't affect him the same way. And his father worked on the racetrack. His father worked in the. Uh, what they call a chip track, which is, you know, like in Riverdown, Cincinnati, Ohio. There are many chip tracks, you know, where you don't know if a horse is going to break down in the middle of the race. They're really badly taken care of, most of them. There's no purse money, et cetera, et cetera. And so I followed him there because I was in love with him, and I didn't want to be alone. And we... How old were you? I was 20... 24. My mother had mm-hmm. died in 77, the year that Seattle Slough won the Triple Crown. I think he won the Triple Crown. Anyway, I know he died in 77. So I went to the racetrack. We worked on the racetrack. We were both drinking, like, alcoholically, I have to say. And at one point, I don't know what it was. I don't know what the moment was. But I think I said something about, hey, you know, this work is grueling. And it is. You are up at 5 o'clock in the morning, every morning, every morning, except you get one day off. 
you feed the horses, you clean out their stalls, you brush them off for the track, you gave them a bath when they come back from the track. And this sounds all like, oh, that's easy, it's very mean. But you're dealing with animals that are huge. You have no idea. You, you kind of know what how they're going to behave, but not always. But you're just dealing, you're not only dealing with, on this level, you know, it didn't matter with the jib track. But, you know, when you got to the class of racing that I got to, which there's no higher, you're dealing with horses that are insured for $34 million. They're worth millions and millions, you know. And there are owners around in the barn, and the trainer is looking at everything that you're doing if you have these horses. And so it's a really, really stressful in every single way that you could imagine, and you are getting paid nothing. I think I was making $150 a week, maybe 200 and this is in the 80s, which is really still not a lot of money. The only way you made money on the racetrack is if you were a great handicapper, and there were, or you had a great horse and you got staked, and you usually got staked. I think it was 1%, but it might have been more. But if you're dealing with a horse that wins a race of, say, like 75000 let's say $100,000, that's $10,000, right? 1% of $10,000, so, or $100,000. So that was the goal. I never thought of that as my goal. I just, like everything else that seemingly happens in my life, that it turns out to be kind of great. It was totally serendipitous. There's another risk going to the racetrack. I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. I thought I was going to die. I really did think I was at the end of my life. I thought I would die on the racetrack, particularly after I saw my first dead horse lying on a pile of, you know, straw and horse manure in the middle of the summer, like off the racetrack. Like it was this horrifying sight. And that was at River Downs. But we decided in some conversation I had, I just we just, I said, if we're going to do this kind of work, which is completely grueling and demoralizing, and we were openly gay, by the way, which was complete verboten, but nobody bo- and I And my belief is that nobody bothered us because we were all outsiders. It didn't matter what you did. You were already way. down at the lowest yeah, level had, of existence exactly. that you couldn't go any lower. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, being queer. Actually, being queer raised us up, I think, a little. We read books. I mean, that, you know. Right, the other, the other grooms would <laughs> look up. Yeah. They'd be like in awe of you guys. Exactly. Readers? So, and it was mostly black and Hispanic. I mean, being white was very unusual. Yeah. And being white with a good horse was really unusual, too. But I hadn't gotten there yet. So, but I said, like, if we're going to do this, we have to, I want to work for the best outfit in the world. I want to, you know, in my grandiosity, my alcoholic grandiosity. So, somehow or another, we got hitched to Woody Stevens. We went to Hialeah, Florida with the Jip trainers that we were working with at River Downs and we hooked up with Woody Stevens who was looking for two grooms this is me and my boyfriend lover at the time and he left and I don't remember why he left because those days are very foggy I'm so drunk so much of the time but because I worked for Woody Stevens and he was at Iolia, what you do in the winter with that particular outfit is you go to Aiken South Carolina in the winter to break yearlings that are then going to be the two-year-olds that are going to race the next season. And in Aiken, South Carolina, which, by the way, I completely fell in love with. I don't know. Have you ever been there? Yeah. It's a really cool town. And I fell in love with a guy, a tennis coach, and a woman, actually. I never had sex with either of them. But I fell deeply in love with these two people in Aiken, South Carolina. And I've been looking for them over the years, like, you know, in some reverie that I have occasionally like I wonder if they're still around but it was a magical time it was a really magical time for some reason which had nothing to do with the horses and I was still drinking I mean I was still an an alcoholic drinking 
And they put this horse that was his father was Seattle Slough and his mother was a horse named Tuerta, which means one eye in Spanish. And she literally had no eye on the side of her face. Like there was flesh, but it was just, the, and the, I guess the orbit bone there. Um, it was kind of beautiful, actually, when you look at pictures. But she was a, she was a stakes winner. She was a grass-running fool, apparently. And they had this baby called Swale, which turned out to be this incredible, amazing horse that won the Kentucky Derby and then died. And at one point, the New York Racing Association thought I had something to do with his death because I was such an incredibly irresponsible drunk. I had gotten fired. He won the Derby, and then we were going for the Triple Crown, and he lost the Preakness. But before the Preakness, I got completely... I must have done something other than alcohol. I must have, because I was the highest I think I've ever been in my entire life. I was f***ing all over the shed row and the stalls. I was knocking over. Finally, the Pinkertons, you know, the guards of the racetrack, they didn't arrest me, but I don't know how they got me under control, but I was fired the next day. He ran in the Preakness and lost. Everybody thinks he lost because I wasn't with him, actually. And I do, too, actually. We did have an incredible relationship. I mean, we were, I was with him for two years, and we, we had a real bond. I was completely in love with him. And he's an amazing horse in personality, not just that, that he could run. So I got back to New York, and um, I couldn't get a job because I, there was an article about me in the New York Times. The day I was fired, there was a profile that Stephen Christ Usually the guy who writes about the races, whose mother actually was the film critic Judith Christ, who just died recently. But anyway, he interviewed me because he wanted to do a little piece on me because I was such an unusual groom because, you know, I was more interested in Stephen Sondheim than the next great racehorse. And I still had these very deep roots in New York that had nothing to do with the racetrack. Like, I was an anachronism. Like, what was I doing on the racetrack? That's what the piece was about. And ironically, and sort of, Beatifically, I may say, that article came out. And it's a rather large article with a picture of me with Swale trying to eat my hat. And it came out of the New York Times the day I was fired. So I couldn't get a job because everybody knew who I was. Then I did get a job. I can't remember how, but I got a job on the racetrack. And then I ended up going to rehab. I just had had it. I was done. And I got sober. So that's actually the shortest version of the story I've ever told. But that was my break. And the book is about all of that. So how many years were you doing that? I was on the racetrack for seven wow. years. Yeah. So had you, did you have an affinity with horses before none that? At, none at all. So tell me about your relationship with horses. What? Because obviously you have to be able to connect with horses. And uh, horses are, I've never, but I've interviewed, I've interviewed several serious horse people oh, really? in the last couple of years. So I've, I've had my eyes open into the magic of horses. And oh, horses yeah. have tremendous presence. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. And at Goddard, there's a lot of talk of embodied knowledge and embodied wisdom that horses are like these these embodiments of presence and power yeah, and yeah. and being. Yeah. That are great models for that. Yeah. Well, you just said it all. I mean, that's really what they are. I mean, that's and that's what you sort of fall in love with. They're very. They're smarter than a lot of people think they're. I'm talking about the thoroughbred racehorse. I don't know anything about other horses. And it used to bother the shit out of me when I would do readings from the book. And people would come up to me and say, you know, 
Oh, I love horses. I'm, you know, can you can you suggest where I can get a really nice pleasure horse, or I want to get a pony? Do you know where? It's like I, I don't know. I mean, I worked on the fucking racetrack. I mean, it's a wholly different. It's a completely different thing. But the affinity that happened between me and Swale and and many other horses that I took care of was the silence. It's really when you're in the stall with a horse, and it's usually about ten thirty or eleven o'clock, and all the morning work is done, and it's just you and the horse and. You know, the Gallup people have left the barn, and literally the trainers probably left the barn. And it's just grooms with horses in the stalls. There's something very sacred and magical about that. It feels like you're inside of a painting or something. It's the light at that time of day, and just, you know, the stall has been cleaned, so you're standing in this really kind of wonderful smelling fresh hay, and this horse is just been bathed, and it's looking magnificent, and you want to make him shine, and... What I've gathered, there's a genuine telepathic yeah. connection between a horse s- and a person who's receptive yeah. to a horse. Yeah, I would say there is. I would say there is. I've also been, all my whole life, I've been very interested in and been a practicer, actually, of telepathy. My brother and I were very telepathic, my twin. Right. And, but there is a telepathic relationship that goes. And I have a lot of moments of very specific telepathy. I, and it's actually one of my great... It's not a regret, but it's something I really wish I was better at. I seriously do. I would love to be a really good psychic. I don't know how you develop it. I wish there was a way. There isn't such a thing as a psychic school, is there? I don't know. But I know that (laughs) you can train. Can you? You can train your mind? I think if you study with somebody who Who is genuine. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I'm really interested in that. Because I do have moments of it, and it's really cool when it happens. But that's what people describe who <laughs> horses who are connected, who work with horses, or really connected and love horses, is that it's a magical and beautiful relationship, more real than any other relationship in many ways than any other relationship they've ever had. Yeah, and with, with any other animal. Very different than with a dog or a right. cat. I think part of it for me had to do with... I don't think there are many racehorses that are that are living that are new souls. I think they're all ancient. I always felt that horses come from a very ancient civilization, actually, in terms of spirit. And they may know everything. They may be the carriers of every kind of knowledge. One book I read was by this guy who's a neurosurgeon, mm-hmm. brain surgeon, one of the most respected, highly respected people in the entire country. And... He wrote a number of books on horses, and one of them, the one that I got to interview him about, was Lead from the Heart, Lessons from a Life with Horses. And Uh. he had such reverence for these horses that Uh. basically he was saying that everything he learned that was significant was from these horses. Uh. I mean, these were... Like, these were his spiritual teachers. Wow. And other people, I've interviewed two other people who, you know, have these amazing relationships with horses, and they have the same reverence for uh, horses. Yeah. And it's, at the very least, it borders on the mystical. Yeah, it's it's, it's really in that guy that wrote that. That's a really interesting thing. Yeah, I really do believe that, you know, and I always felt that, too. There's, first of all, I mean, they're so magisterial. There's just no way around it. I mean, and they're huge. And you, you can't f*** with them. Yeah, you can't f*** with them. And they're also, when you think about all that weight on a very small surface area, I mean, their hooves are not that big. Their They're legs sleek. are incredibly delicate. Yes. You know, I mean, that's the first injury, obviously, right. is the leg or the, the knee or the ankle, the ankle particularly. You know, there are lots of very common injuries. Thank God Swale never got them. And actually, 
none of the horses that I worked with ever got really seriously broken down because I have to say because of their lineage. They're really well-bred. I mean, the more money that these people, Arabs mostly, spend on horses, that's why they run in these races. And by the way, all this talk, all this talk about, you know, it's so mean to, to run. They're bred to run. They, they're not bred to waltz around a fucking child's birthday party. Do you know what I mean? Right. It just infuriates me. Yeah. And I, I have a confession to make of myself. <laughs> yeah. The exact same time that you were doing that, yeah. particularly around the time of Swale, was my short little stint of going to the track oh, really? at Del Mar and betting, oh. you know, playing the horses. Oh, how funny. And I, another... I, I had a great time. And for me, it was great because it was, it was a short, it was a month and a half season at Del Mar. So it didn't consume my life. It only consumed half of my summer. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Hey, listen, Tony, I just looked at the time. You have to run? I do. Okay. I have to be somewhere in 10 minutes. Well, this has been wonderful. Oh, really? I, I just can't believe what time it is. I know. I, mean, well, I, I suspected that time was flying by, but I had no idea. Too. And I was afraid, and that's why I didn't look, because I was afraid uh, to look at the, what that Well, I'm glad you looked at it before. It was 6, six o'clock. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but it was delightful. It, it really was. was. It was really fun. Yeah. I had a great time. Yeah. Thank you for asking me. Do you have time for one more poem? Oh, sure. I always have time for a poem, Tomeo. <laughs> I'll do it in my Elaine Stritch voice. Now, I actually met Elaine Stritch at this 12-step fellowship meeting that we used to go to together. And after I qualified at this meeting, and afterwards she came up to me and she said, I could be your mother. Because we have a very similar speaking voice. I don't know. Let's see what's appropriate for a closer. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. It's hard to let you go. I know. On such short notice. I know. I'm really sorry. I, 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 <laughs> don't apologize. I know. Don't it, apologize. I know. You just, just, you have to savor the moment. Absolutely. You know, you know. And we've been savoring this Many moment them, for, 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 for a long two time. Two and a half hours. Yeah. So I, no <laughs> regrets. Three hours. No sadness. Almost. I mean, it's three, been fabulous. Two, three, four, thirty-five. No, yeah. This yeah. is fabulous. Okay. This has been fabulous. <laughs> okay. No regrets. No, no, no regrets. apologies. No, nothing. Okay. Oh, here's one. We were talking about drinking, so what the hell? This is called a saver. I'm having a hard time seeing. Can you turn yes. on a light? Yes. Oh, thank you. We're not in the total darkness radio listening audience, but it is a little, you know, smoky it's, it's Joe's a little cafe. atmospheric, yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, part of why we were able to get lost in this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I once did a master tape of music for Vanguard Records when I was at Music and Art in Candlelight. And it was a huge, it was a room that size. That was really quite something. I don't know whatever happened to that music. It's called a saver. I have a friend who still drinks, but less. He still changes, though, especially in public. He submerges in public like a dolphin in a wave. Drinking makes him forget how to be alone in public. Someone would say that the black label my friend was riding on Last night was only a dolphin and not the shark I've seen pull him under waves so fast and dangerous they're saltless. Later, when we were having a kind of sex, he said that he could stay like this with me all night, which made me know he didn't or wouldn't. Stay like this meant the scotch wave of light over and over and over the dark and not go out. I wasn't this. He was pretty heavy. 
you have this way of putting words together. That, well, syntax is my my middle name. Yeah. Seriously, syntax. I was telling that in the, syntax is. I really, 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 really mess around with syntax. It's a beautiful gift. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it, and thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. <laughs> totally my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, Tony. It was great. <laughs> Michael Klein. <laughs> I know, right? Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? I know. This is cool. Some people know. Yes, some people know. And now more people know. <laughs> or they will. That was great. Thank you. It was so fun. Thank you. You're a great conversationalist. The best interviews are conversations, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. you got nothing to worry about there. Not school. That was Michael Klein. He's a writer, poet, and professor of writing, and he's the author of The End of Being Known, The Talking Day, Then We Were Still Living, and When I Was a Twin. Have a wonderful week, and thank you so much for listening. This show is brought to you by Goddard College Community Radio. For more information, check out wgdr.org. Thank you.